This programming is sponsored by Central Market, offering chef-prepared appetizers, mains, and sides for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like quiche, grilled chicken, dips, and salads prepared daily. More at centralmarket.com. Welcome to Power Politics. I'm Jeronimo Cortina, a political scientist and associate director at the Center for Mexican-American Studies at the University of Houston. And I'm Brandon Rodinghouse, a political science professor at the University of Houston. Well, Geronimo, we are back after a long hiatus. Um, I guess the good news is nothing really happened since we were gone, right? Everything's been very calm. Yeah. Very waters, right? Very calm. Weather has been perfect. Uh, nothing. <laughs> since beautiful that, day in uh, Texas. Snow what was that? The snowstorm? Oh, Snowmageddon. Snow yeah. How do you call it? Snowmageddon. Yeah. I yeah, exactly. I called I think, it a lot of stuff then. I can't repeat on the yeah. air since we're, you know, a family right. program. But yeah. Well, but, but that's <laughs> basically where we left. That is about where we left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, things have thought out and it's in part because the politics are heating up. So we're going to talk this week about a lot of things that are happening in Washington. The Biff and the Triple B we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Donald Trump, I think, head faking a nod towards the presidency. We'll talk about Texas abortion litigation. And then finally, the big picture we're going to talk about this week is going to be redistricting in Texas, which is still ongoing and is going to be, I think, really spicy as things move forward. So let's uh, turn our attention to Washington, D.C., Geronimo this week. Tell us what the BIF is. Tell us what the BBB is well, <laughs> for those listening at home. Right. So that's a, a lot of uh, very nice, uh, I guess, <laughs> acronyms, uh, to say the least. So basically, we're talking about the BIF and the BPP is one is the infrastructure package, right? And then we have uh, especially what it's uh, the budget in terms of debt ceiling, this and that, et cetera, et cetera. So the bipartisan infrastructure package or bill or whatever it is called, right? Yes. The BIF, right? It's <laughs> the basically BIF. it's basically a $3.5 trillion if you include the human capital expenses that progresses in the, in the Democratic Party want to include. But basically, so far, is a group of, of 69 senators, uh, 50 Democrats and 19 Republicans passed this $1 trillion infrastructure package, right? And this has or includes around uh, $550 billion for spending on roads, bridges, uh, access, uh, broadband, and, uh, and, and a little bit more. But the problem is that more. the House <laughs> wants more right yeah. and what is that brendan always uh yeah the the real fight here as you say has been between the moderates and progressive and the democratic party so the biff the bipartisan infrastructure package is likely to pass the question is sort of how and when it passes so for a long time they were paired together they're going to vote on both as a group this kind of omnibus legislation that makes it easier for people to swallow a nasty pill it's like if you ever give your dog you know uh, medicine wrapped in cheese <laughs> uh, or cheese wrapped around the medicine. That's the you way you have that... to use pocket peels. <laughs> That's the way that I think of this. So that basically they were paired together, then they got unpaired and now they're being paired back together. So the speaker and the, um, and the majority leader in the Senate, um, Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer is set Halloween as a spooky deadline for when they're going to try to get both of these legislative packages passed. But the real sticking point, as you say, is 
how much money to spend in the BBB. This is the Build Back Better, or as Republicans say, Build Back Broke. <laughs> uh, this is a package that ranges between $1 trillion and $3.5 trillion, depending on what state you're from. If you're Joe Manchin, you're looking at maybe one and a half to two. If you're look, you know, if you're a progressive, you're looking at more like three and a half. So that's been the real fight here. But the fact that they didn't get this done, I think, is really a suggestion that the left did pressure Joe Biden to put a pin back in the grenade and hold off until they could get this negotiated. The moderates, though, are also kind of claiming victory because they are going to probably be successful at trimming that package down. So the question remains about kind of exactly what they can do to make that footprint financially a little bit smaller. Right. And by moderates, you mean, you know, basically Arizona Center, Christine Cinema, and West Virginia Senator Joan Manchin, right? That yeah, happened. it's easier than all, all, you know, saying the, the word salad of these senators, who are basically, as you say, are really the two sticking points here, right? Exactly. And it, it's amazing how much power they have gotten at the beginning of this year yeah. uh, uh, by, by, by holding that. But they can be makers and breakers, and they can basically kill the Democratic Party's aspirations for the midterms and also for the next presidential election. I mean, they would be responsible uh, for making it or breaking it. That's a great point. And honestly, in some ways, the big winner here is Donald Trump, who is still like able to kind of lick his chops at this and say, like, the Democrats can't govern. The fact that they haven't gotten this done already with a majority is, I think, a kind of black eye for Joe Biden. They're going to get it done, but how it gets done is going to be the issue. And whether or not they're lasting kind of, I think, partisan hard feelings is going to be the other question. So this is all um, still, I think, kind of up in the air. Nancy Pelosi still negotiating fervently. If there's anybody you trust to get it done, it's going to be her. But her legacy is on the line here, too, because she's going to have to you know, get this, get this finished. Um, right. And if the left ends up actually getting the better of her, that'll be the story of her speakership, regardless of all the other details. I mean, we'll see what happens. You say Halloween. Uh, it's spooky. <laughs> There's nothing scarier than like, you know, playing financial chicken with the nation's debt ceiling. <laughs> exactly uh, right. And I so, mean, uh, those are the Halloween deadlines. The consequences are not, you know, getting a friendly letter from your credit card uh, person right. saying, uh, dear customer, did you forget uh, your mm -hmm. monthly payment today? By the way, uh, no a massive, you know, interest payment that you owe us, <laughs> or, or you know, sending the letter uh, from the you know uh, debt collector, uh, dear whatever. Now I'm representing whatever, whatever you owe us money. Uh, if you cannot pay, call us. Like I mean, that's not going to happen. Early men at your doorstep pounding on your on on your door. <laughs> that's exactly. what this is. Right, right. So you know if. The debt ceiling doesn't pass. I think it's going to pass. And, you know, they're just making uh, Democrats sweat it a little bit more. The consequence would be very, very, very bad. And Republicans and Democrats know what are those consequences. So I think that's going to pass. They're just trying to extract something else. Republicans are very good at that. Yeah. And, you know, Democrats are not very good at calling the bluff. You know, it's it's part of calling each other's bluff. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, this kind of, you know, brinkmanship politics that's constantly driving what happens in Washington is troublesome for, like, this nation's fiscal health. But I think that both sides have to kind of play to their base, right? Democrats have got to say, you know, we're pushing this issue. The Republicans are on our way. Republicans want to say, we're fighting the Democrats on this because we don't want to increase the debt, even though the debt increased, debt increased significantly under Donald Trump. So right. everyone's playing to their base. 
I guess if it has to come to this for people to get a deal done, then fine. But this really, I think, falls into the department of can kicking. What we had this week was that effectively that Mitch McConnell backed down from his claim that he wouldn't put any kind of Republican support behind increasing the debt ceiling, which, by the way, runs out on the 18th, where the nation will literally run out of money. So the fourth time was effectively a charm. Mitch McConnell basically agreed to back down. Partly people suggest that he backed down because the idea of having a filibuster carve out was part of the story. Do you Mm. buy that logic that basically McConnell wants to keep the filibuster? It's a massive tool in his arsenal. I mean, as much as LBJ was the master of the Senate, Mitch McConnell is like the wizard of the Senate. So he needs the filibuster. He doesn't want to let it go. And so the threat that Joe Biden floated to say, well, maybe we'll have a carve out that says that in cases of the debt ceiling, we won't even consider a filibuster, it'll just be a simple majority, could have actually spooked McConnell, speaking of Halloween. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, but, you know, if Democrats want to be serious about governing and about, you know, pushing their agenda, as Republicans did, rightly so, when they had the power to do so, right? Yeah. They have to think about getting rid of the filibuster. What are the consequences? Well, the consequences is that when they're in the minority, then they will have to suffer, Right. It's a it's a 50-50 chance, but if they want to have any chance of winning, you know, uh, in the midterms or at least not being hurt so much, they need to do something and they need to do something now. Yeah. And it's the subtle art of how we talk about things in politics, especially in Washington, the difference between a retreat and a tactical retreat. <laughs> this is a tactical exactly. retreat for Mitch exactly. McConnell. Exactly. But he asked the Democrats to do the impossible, and that is to govern. <laughs> he right. was like, you have to pass this on your own. He backtracks from this, which obviously I think to be honest, saves Chuck Schumer and what was a kind of middling strategy to begin with. So this clears the deck for the Biff and the buh 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 <laughs> right. term that and... triple B sounds more like uh, Bed Bath and Beyond than it does uh, legislative. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, exactly. Package, but... exactly. 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 <laughs> so we'll call it the buh 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 instead. The buh buh buh. Um, yeah, and that opens the door, right, uh, to exactly given the political climate where, you know, former President Trump is whether announcing tomorrow in six months or whatnot, yep. if he's running for president or not, right? right? So what's going on there? Uh, apparently, yeah, this week, the president continues to flirt with this uh, as aggressively as, uh, you know, as any middle school, <laughs> you know, boy would trying to determine whether he'll run or not. I think a lot of expectations point to yes, but there's a problem. So he got talked out of announcing this week, according to some sources, because campaign finance law is a heck of a thing. So what it basically does is to suggest that if you are officially a candidate for president, you cannot coordinate with your super PAC. So his MAGA PAC and his Save America PAC cannot technically communicate with him as a candidate. So announcing would trigger that law. So I think that's of interest. I think there's another political explanation too, though, and that is that midterms are coming up. We don't know how Mm. it's going to go. We're going to speculate about this endlessly between now and then, but, um, and it'll be a lot of fun. Hopefully you'll come along for the ride. Um, But the problem for Donald Trump is that if Republicans do badly, there's a really good chance that Republicans will blame him. And if that's the case, then it makes him, I think, weaker position-wise than he would otherwise be going into 2024. Right, right. I think I think it's the latter. I think that 
campaign laws. He doesn't care, and he said it. They're stupid. <laughs> uh, so okay, he doesn't whatever. Care about the law? Uh, so you know, whatever. Uh, it's what it is. But I think it's it's the latter, right? It's is as you mm. say. It's also a tactical maneuver in terms of deciding when it's better and when he's going to be you know, better position to announce it, right? Yeah. But also that leaves, you know, a lot of people that were salivating about 2024, you know, on the on the fence, whether they're going to run or not run. And yeah. that has implications as we're going to talk in just a little bit about Texas and the relationship between Governor Abbott and, and President Trump. It has a lot of political, I would say, caveats, but also a lot of political complexities that affect how and what's going to happen in the midterm election. Yeah. Republicans seem to want him to run. Like polling from Pew this week says that 67% of Republicans and Republican-leading independents would like to see Donald Trump continue to be a major political figure. 44% say they want him to run again. Here's a little snippet from uh, something I came across. Um, so Donald Trump is obviously banned from Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and every other <laughs> social media venue you can find, but he is struggling to find his own. And so he talked about maybe making his own and he talked about naming it, get this, Trumpet, like Trump dash it. And I think apparently the person who heard this wasn't sure if they meant it to be Trump dash it or Trumpet, like a blowing horn trumpet. Oh, and the more I think about it, the more I think that the blowing horn trumpet actually yeah. would be pretty cool. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right? absolutely. And it does what it says. It's not a bad idea. Well, let's talk Texas, actually. Big news yeah. breaking this week, at the end of this week, right before we uh, started to um, put the show together. So what happened there in um, on the abortion fight? So basically, uh, a federal judge temporarily blocked Texas abortion ban uh, uh, in the middle of this week and basically uh, says uh, that the law is right now put on hold. And that would allow providers to continue providing abortions after six weeks of of, of pregnancy, right? As previous laws and or as mm -hmm. previous uh, previously, uh, it was allowed in Texas. So this is obviously a very interesting movement. Now it's obviously going to go after after this uh, announcement is going to go to the Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, which is. Perhaps or not perhaps, it's one of the most conservative appellate court, and we'll see if it's going to stay there or not. But certainly, this is going to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it'll be this case plus other cases that are um, similar cases in different states. So yeah. there's no question we're going to see this repeat. So we don't want to make too much of this because it's the first stop on like a really long train. So we're not going to get to see the end of this for a little while. But definitely important and obviously gives us a sort of sense of where things are in Texas, right? The legal yep. fight over these issues continue. But a lot of people are not going to be around for the fight, Geronimo. Uh, there are yeah. more than a dozen members of the Texas House and Senate who are leaving. So this week it was announced that Eddie Lucio III, who represents Brownsville, was not going to seek re-election. Yeah. Because he was thought to be kind of the heir apparent to his father's seat, Senate seat. Um, his father's more conservative than he, but that seat definitely is tailor-made for somebody like Lucio. Lucio becomes the 14th House member to not seek re-election. And actually, too, somewhat breaking news, County Judge Nelson Wolf, who's a Democrat in Bear County, decided he wasn't also going to run for re-election. So is there a pattern forming here? Are people leaving the political process for a reason? I mean, is it idiosyncratic well, but, to them or is I it? I think it's mixed, no? 
I think it's mixed. I think you have, you know, let's say around 50, a little bit more than 50% are retiring, like saying, I don't want to play anymore. The rest around 45 to 46% are just running for something else, mm-hmm. uh, house district or something else, right? The interesting thing is that when you compare Republicans, uh, n- you know, no, not seeking re-election for whatever purpose versus Democrats, it's around, you know, uh, 70 to 30 percent, 70 percent of those that are retired, of, of those that are not running are from the Republican Party versus, you know, around 30 percent of the Democratic Party. Republicans are the more moderate striped Republicans, right? So, yep. Me, it is somewhat systematic. You're having a lot of the moderates drop out saying, I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. It's not the Republican Party I signed on for. The ledge is totally different than it was when they joined, even, you know, five, Mm -hmm. six years ago. So I feel like it is systematic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why they are, you know, retiring. And and this opens the door, right? Given that you have more political uh, polarization when election time comes, does this opens the door for Democrats, right? Yeah. If you are left of center uh, Democrat, would that make you more palatable to the general electorate than someone that is running for the Republican Party on the far right? It's possible, yeah. Although, to be honest, like we'll talk about in a minute, redistricting is pretty much drawing these districts for strong Republicans. So, as we know from history and from data that we can look at, including our colleague Boris Shore, when you have a replacement effect like this, you have a more extreme member replacing a more moderate member. So my guess is, and I don't even know if we have to check this, it's going to be just so self-evident that every single Republican is going to be replaced with somebody who's more conservative than the person they're replacing. Every single Democrat who's going to, is going to be replaced with a more liberal version of themselves. So we're going to see continuous polarization, I think, because of this. So to me, when I see people dropping out, it makes me worried, big alarm, because that's what's going to happen. And polarization mm-hmm. is only going to get worse. So I think that's worrisome. The other part of this is that Donald Trump's influence in Texas is still incredible. And we've got a bunch of examples of this this week, including the fact that Greg Abbott is pushing for a border wall. He and uh, I don't know, a half dozen other governors were at the border this week talking about uh, the you know need to have this border wall. But it turns out there's one person who's really invested in Greg Abbott's border wall, Geronimo. Is it you? Are you the one who's giving all this millions of dollars to the No, no. no? I, I, I wish I had that kind of money, uh, but no, I don't have that kind of money. That's uh, <laughs> Mr. Mellon from uh, Wyoming actually donated, what, more than 50 million or something like that to build a really wall. Really high. So, I mean, but my questions here are, you know, we always are very, very proud of our uh, autonomy, of how we do things here in Texas. But here we are, right? Uh, Following whatever uh, Donald Trump says and following and getting the money from a person from Wyoming. And, you know, it's like, what happened to us? I mean, what happened for us to decide ourselves to do what is needed? I don't know. I mean, well, it's just, it's a question. It's a question, but, and, and, and it's a good question. And, and here's a tentative answer. And that is that the reason that it's working is because Texas politics is now nationalized. Um, as I've been talking about, I've been doing this book on Rick Perry. And what it has sort of told me about the era of Texas in the 80s and 90s was that although there's partisan friction, it was effectively bipartisan, or even as one person told me, nonpartisan. It, the job was to get right. the, the thing done, to get policy done. So it's an interesting change to see where we are now. And 
to some degree, a lot of members have told me that they prided themselves on not being Washington. Well, now we are Washington, right? Yeah. The nationalization of politics has created this moment. So another couple of examples include the audit bill, which is on the agenda, and um, that's passed through the Texas Senate. I don't think it's going to get through the House because Speaker Phelan, I think, is kind of done with all of that. What do you think that the chances are that the new audit bill is going to go to the House with a favorable reception? I hope not, right? <laughs> I mean, Phelan is very clear. I mean, this is done, and that's it. Let's move on. And I think that it's important for, you know, also politicians to not follow this, this path. Because once again, as you have said before, if we go in, in, in this path of discrediting elections without any evidence that it was a fraudulent election, then democracy starts to lose its power. It's not good. It's not good at all to go down this path. Well, speaking of polarization and a kind of, you know, culture war politics in Texas, this week, uh, a lawmaker introduced a resolution to anoint the Bible as the official state book of Texas. Um, is this going to pass, Geronimo? And if it does pass, like, what do we make of what has happened? I mean, I think it's unconstitutional by any shape or form. You know, the First Amendment says, uh, you know, basically no man shall be compelled to support any religious group or place or ministry whatsoever. And also uh, the First Amendment allows you to believe or not believe in anything at all. So you have basically that that is embedded in our constitution and then is extremely problematic, right? It's, it's extremely, extremely, extremely problematic to have these, again, levels of polarization. You know, and I wonder if, if some of these uh, uh, individuals that are arguing for these have read, you know, the Bible uh, uh, from time to time, right? <laughs> you have in the Bible very clear, for example, stances on immigration, right? Uh, like Leviticus 19:33 to 34. Oh, wow. And yet Not the... we do the completely opposite of what the Bible says, right? In terms of immigration policy. I like it. <laughs> so so it's it's like, okay, if we're going to adopt it, right? Are we going to do everything that the Bible says? Care for the poor, help the sick, welcome the foreigners to our land. Or we're gonna, going to carve out those things and just focus on whatever is convenient for one party or the other. So right. it's this level of polarization and then this level of hypocrisy, I would say, that is very, very, very alarming. It's legally, constitutionally kind of a weird area, right? They're not choosing a religion, I don't think, although maybe a case could be made that that's right. It's not clear which version of the Bible that they're going to use. So lots of questions. But I think here's what it's telling us is that the kind of grievance politics, this kind of culture war politics is really just front and center. And there's not a lot of reason for it. If you want to read the Bible, just do it. Right? Exactly. Why to be part of the state text is, is I think, uh, exceedingly unneeded, given how many problems there are. But if we are going to choose a state text, what are we going to choose? What would you choose? Uh, I don't know. Uh, no text. I mean, I mean, because need, text, the problems with text is that they create a lot of, of you know, you may like a book. You may dislike a book. You know, we can all agree on blue bonnets, right? Uh, it's easy. 
but then agreeing on on the text, agreeing on a book is 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 very uh, very controversial. And what we need is not to create more controversies. And and again, I disagree with your interpretation of constitutional right because you know the Second Amendment never ever talked about magazines or high capacity magazines, right? If we want to go by the Constitution, we should all be carrying muskets and we should be carrying, you know, powder we stuff. Carry and the little balls and the like. The exactly. Thing. <laughs> the metal stick on, on the barrel. I mean, because when they were drafting the Constitution, those were the arms, right? Those were paper. the firearms. Be, so, I think I'd like to see that, right? Okay. Uh, but, but then it's, it's like, you know, we bend it. We bend our interpretations whatever it's is 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 convenient for one political side or the other well speaking of bending the politics to your will this week's deep dive is about redistricting and obviously it's been a source of tremendous political contention for years every 10 years clearly but even between those times for sure the Republicans have unveiled their plans for different districts. They're negotiating and changing depending on sort of some of the input they're getting. But there are some big changes afoot here, right? And so the fact that you've got such tremendous growth in Texas makes these districts hard to draw. And the fact that so much of that growth is driven by people of color is also complicated for Republicans who want to draw districts to help them to get elected. I think overall what's happening is that because of this kind of unpredictable growth in suburban areas, Republicans have moved to shore up support in districts they know they can win instead of gambling that maybe right. this will be red in the future. So I think you're seeing that time and time again in the state Senate districts, state House districts, congressional districts. I don't know that you're seeing like Democrats disadvantaged. In some ways, they are more advantaged. Congressional District 7 is a good example. That's a now clearly Democratic district. Um, the same thing is happening in a House district in North Texas and Plano. They're drawing a district which is clearly Democratic in an area that wasn't that way before. So I don't think Democrats are being dramatically hurt by this, although in some cases, yes. <laughs> but well, I mean, ask uh, Representative uh, Jackson Lee and Al Green. <laughs> And well, I don't think that they're very happy. Their district is just that, like like you say, those districts don't have the same things they used to have. So the University of Houston is not in Sheila Jackson Lee's district, nor is, you know, her house. So <laughs> accommodations right. have to be made. But, but my read is that basically Republicans are trying to shore up support in places they know they can win. And what I think it means is that you've got effectively Republicans who are carving off some of the questionable suburban areas that are kind of in purple mode and putting those into the more, um, you know, kind of safe districts. And so it's creating a moment where Republicans are likely to do better, but maybe not like a lot better. Right. But again, is is this issue of how partisan this process is, right? And I've said this many, many, many times, you know, elections is a, a, a market, right? It's a competitive market. And here we're not having, you know, fair competitive elections, right? Why? Because redistricting is partisan and the best ideas are not going to be the ones that win. The best ideas are going to be the ones that are carved out, right, in terms of how I choose my constituency, not yeah. how my constituency chooses me. And this applies to both political parties, right? It doesn't yeah. apply to one side or the other. So the question here is, are we really, really abiding by the substantive notion of democracy? And the answer to that question is, oh, it's very weird, right? 
How do you put that in a multiple choice? Like the, ooh, ah. <laughs> it's usually uh, I mean, just two. like that. He's like, oh my goodness, great. Mm, maybe, yes. Well, I mean, if right. you pressure um, me, but no. I mean, reality is, if we were, just think about this. If we were analyzing, right, uh, the Department of State was uh, analyzing the election, electoral map in another country, right? The way that Texas is rejoining its districts, it will say, this country is not democratic right. at all. Yeah, and, and some of the metrics we have for this, like the partisan voting index shows that basically 35 of the congressional districts are a plus 10 or more, which means they're not competitive. Like one party is going to win that. Only two right. are within range. So you're right. These aren't competitive elections and no competitive elections means you're going to have increased polarization. And that continues the same logic that we've been talking about the entire episode and maybe our entire podcast and show so <laughs> exactly. we're not gonna stop there Geronimo for sure we're gonna be doing this forever and ever and ever right all right Brandon so that's it for this week on this positive note <laughs> keep bringing the joy right a special thanks to our producer Troy Schultz and big kudos to our web and graphics team here at Houston Public Media for a great new design on our website I'm Brandon Rottinghouse party continues next week I'm Geronimo Cortina nos escuchamos